Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. I started reading at long last, and I think this book is part of my, it's part of my comps for my dissertation. I've started reading Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, finally. I had not read it, so I am reading it, and uh, at the same time, I'm also reading Martin Luther King's Why We Can't Wait. And it's amazing how relevant so much of it still is. <laughs> so <clears throat> you asked me if we were going Sunday to talk about taking sides. And the answer to that question is yes. Mm-hmm. And for this Sunday and next Sunday. So I... I have been reading this book by um, <clears throat> Albert Nolan, who is a Dominican priest. Yeah. Who did his theological work, his um, public theology work in South Africa during the time of apartheid. And so <clears throat> he has mm-hmm. written a number of books, but in this particular book that I'm reading, which is called hope in an age of despair. He's talking about what it means to be prophetic. Yeah. What it means to do God's will and what it means to practice righteousness. And he says that righteousness in both the Hebrew scripture and in the Christian Testament means judgment, not passing judgment, but making judgments about what is in line with the will of God. And as I said last week in our Mm. conversation in Ordinary Life, beginning with the story of Moses and the liberation of people from Egyptian bondage, the Bible never never veers from taking sides with the oppressed, the poor, the disadvantaged, the widows and the orphans, those on the outside, those at the bottom. And I think we have to take their side. Yeah. Do you remember some years ago when I think I was, I'm sure that I will hit a point again in my life when I will grapple with God, Um, just like, the heel grabber, Jacob, right? But I um, remember asking you, what does it even mean when people talk about God's will? I don't understand how some people seem to claim to have this direct line where, well, God told me this, or God put it on my heart this. And for so long, I thought, well, I was missing something, or I was doing something wrong. And you sent me that article called um, Letter to the Anxious Christians. Do you remember that? do yeah and it was such a balm because it ends up saying you know the will of god if god has a will is plain and clear to love justice 
to do mercy and to walk humbly. Right. And so anything that's in service of justice, humility, and mercy, this is the meek. These are the merciful. These are the righteous that the Beatitudes talk about is therefore in the service of God. In so much as God can even be conceived of as a being, I don't have that conception anymore that God is a being, but that is the only option we have if we are to celebrate life, is to promote more life for more people, more quality life, more just life, more merciful life for the most people. And and that is God's will. Yeah. So you and I have talked long enough now that you know I really don't like to repeat things if I can keep from it, but sometimes we have to repeat things because they're so fundamental. And in this space that we're in, which was ushered in, at least for me, by Ilya Delio, and for you, probably by Brian Swim. Oh, I would say by Ilya, actually. Okay. I, would, I would point, you know, I say this. I think, and I've said this to you before, I think it was my oldest son who began to ask questions about cosmo, cosmological being that I was like, huh, I don't know which led me to Ilya, which led me to Brian, which led me to what I'm doing now. So anyways. <laughs> so anyway, we're, we're in this period that was ushered in, at least in our consciousness yeah. by Ilya. Yeah. And where we've gotten to is to say that two of the fundamental building blocks that we are using in this space between the no longer and the not yet is number one, the end of cosmological dualism and number two, the end of individual salvation. Right. If you end individual salvation out the window goes this notion that God has a specific will for me and my life. I mean, I, I think that God's will for me is that I bring my life into alignment with just exactly what you said, practicing justice and doing mercy and, and walking humbly. Mm -hmm. I think that's God's will for all of us. Yeah. But even more than that, God's overarching will is that we practice justice for those who have no power. That's right. Or for those who have been marginalized by no fault of their own, just by some law, rule, or societal expectation that was made up, that this was completely arbitrary. Right. There's, I've come to, I was really feeling this this morning. Um, I'm sure you've read William James, um, yes. philosopher, theologian, psychologist. Um, and he, and so many others that sort of were, fall in his camp around that time, even Carl Jung believed so heartily in the work of the individual as the process toward what we might call salvation. That the, that the individual work could lead to expansive consciousness and therefore salvation and therefore better societal experience. But the thing that is really frustrating for me is that these are men who in their own circumstances had the most privileges. They are white European men who could write from that perspective of having a social safety net, which allowed them to pursue individual meaning purpose and 
salvation, if you will, or what will, what mm-hmm. William James calls the something more. Right. And I think in, in Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois was a student of William James and he too at first was kind of like, yeah, if individuals have these opportunities, then we could change the world. But postgraduate, he begins to then spend time in these various black communities in which the community still relied so much on the collective. In other words, they didn't have the privilege of individual salvation. They, could, they, they had the commitment to collective and communal salvation, if you will. And so Du Bois then starts to realize, well, there, isn't, there can't be individual salvation without collective. And I think that this, um, this idea of individual salvation, even as spoken from some of the most revered psychologists, is erroneous. Yes, we need to work on ourselves, but we can only ever work on ourselves in as much as we participate in the community, in as much right. as we put back. Right. Right. Yeah. So we have this um, beatitude in front of us for Sunday, yeah. which is that blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, I want to be clear that this is a teaching that was put into the mouth of Jesus. Jesus had a thing that is in the Gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. It's also picked up and reflected in the Gospel of Luke that says, uh, don't think that I came to bring peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's completed in a way that probably the scholars say he he did not say, but he did say, um, I came to cast a fire on the earth, and I wish it were a flame right now. And he made a distinction. I mean, he did try to bring people together. Uh, his One of his most famous stories, we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. was about crossing boundaries that Jews would never have crossed to do a religious teaching. But he made a huge distinction between the peace of the world and the peace of God, mm-hmm. as he would put it. And both he and John the Baptist, his teacher, um, were really clear uh, in their prophetic stance. You people better get together (laughs) or you're in big trouble. Yeah. It's like the same thing that you would say to one of your three boys. If you don't do your homework, you're not going to pass this grade. grade, Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're not being cruel but that is a judgment i mean you do this you're going to get this outcome yeah and um i'm thinking how there are a lot of people in our culture right now who are saying to both the people on the right and the left who are protesting just calm down just take it easy don't cause trouble Mm -hmm. let's just get things back to where they were I think that's a dangerous point of view. It is a dangerous point of view. And, you know, so there's two things that you said. One is the fire. And I want to hold that image for a second, right? I I talk so frequently lately about James Baldwin's seminal work, The Fire Next Time. 
Um, and recently, Tanhasi Coates wrote an article in this, you need to pick this up, the recent edition of Vanity Fair, which was completely edited and arranged um, in part in partnership with Tanahasi Coates. So it's it's homage to so many black writers in America and um, and artists and 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 graphics and it's a really beautiful issue. But he he wrote about fire also in his kind of editorial opening to this magazine. And fire is the necessary catalyst for change. Fire is the necessary catalyst for a forest to become more rich in nutrients, right? Yes, the fire can get out of hand, and we are seeing that not only literally in forest fires, but we can see how, um, how at, at different times, um, social fires have gotten out of hand and have gone toward violence, right? And um, I've, I mentioned that I was reading Martin Luther King's Why We Can't Wait, and he talks about two things. Number one, he talks, not using the language of fire, but he talks about being an extremist for love. Mm-hmm. And if we don't take the position of being an extremist for love, which Jesus was, which Paul was, which Martin Luther, he says, was, which Lincoln had some, ex, you know, for his time, an extremist view, then we can't ever change these justice systems. So we must take a side. Mm-hmm. And he, Martin Luther King, and this is the part that is still so relevant admonishes the white moderate and saying for anyone who says just wait a little longer just just be a little more patient just do it this way has never really known oppression and what martin luther king says and i'll read this is i had so hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom I have just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, all Christians know that colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but it is possible that you are in too great of a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. And Martin Luther King says, such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills, but actually time itself is neutral. It can be used destructively or constructively. I don't think I've ever heard that. That's a beautiful passage. It's from his letter from a Birmingham jail. Well, I have heard it then yeah. because I've read that. This has been a while, maybe. It's, it's been yeah. a while. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, but that's so true. This concept of time, if you just, that was in 1963. We're in 2020. And folks who are saying, we need justice now are still being told, just, just be patient. Just wait. If you just do it this way, maybe you'll get what you need. And I just think we have to say, no. Time is, is, as we've constructed it, can be used for justice or not for justice. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that um, one of us, and I'll try to take it upon myself to do this, <laughs> uh, can speak when we get to really digging into this beatitude to the fact that peacemakers um, are probably going to stir up trouble before 
there is this superficial, let's just play nice. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Because we have to be involved in the biblical concept of judgment, which is putting things right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that um, the prophetic voice that we need now is just like that Martin Luther King passage that you read or like the prophetic voices in the Hebrew tradition. Prophets spoke to situations. This is wrong. Mm -hmm. This needs to stop. Right. They spoke before situations. If you don't do this, then these are the consequences that are likely to happen. Mm -hmm. And they spoke for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They spoke for people who did not have the voices to speak for themselves. Right. And the, those are the elements of peacemaking. Yeah. I'm so glad you just drew me into the next line that inspired me. I didn't, I have these two books next to me that I thought, well, if it sort of comes to this, I'll respond to these passages. You say we, we speak for people. You know who Jane Addams was? Yes. One of the sort of mothers of um, liberation for women, but she was mm -hmm. also a co-founder of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And she worked alongside anti-racists. She worked alongside Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois. And, um, you know, <laughs> let me just pause for a second and say, there are probably so many, she's well known, but she doesn't get the sort of historical credit that many white European males get, right? Just think for a second of how many voices have gone unheard because the time, quote unquote, wasn't right for their voice to be included in the historical dialogue. But she says, um, so in her kind of movement toward liberation, she gave a talk and she says, rather than doing good for people, she believed you had to do good with people. The people who were in need of some help or improvement in their lives had to be involved in naming and working for that improvement. Democracy had to be at work in all social relationships. 1902. 1902. Wow. Of course it was a woman. <laughs> well, that, that, you took away what I was going to say because, you know, I also have said another repetition that one of the things that's really affected our time is the shadow archetype of patriarchy. Yes. And and add to that racism. So if you have a black female's voice, it's going to get squished down. Well, she and was a white female who worked alongside black females. Alongside the black. Right, right. And males, black men and women. And in her understanding of some amount of social exclusion, she could extend outward and say, there are others in this category with me, black men and women. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so she chose her she chose that. She chose to love justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and I, I think about humility. You know, humility is not kind of going, oh, no, 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 it's not, it, I, I, won't, I won't take the mic. 
Humility is knowing that the words you speak don't necessarily come from you, nor are they about you, but that they represent the multitudes that come along with you. You know what I mean? Like, it's not taking personal credit for saying, oh, no, we all, this whole group is coming with me, you know? Like, humility can be strong, I guess, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 wanna, I want to, I think, um, when we get into this beatitude, talk about um, pacifism. Mm-hmm. Because pacifism uh, can stir up a lot of trouble. Yes, good trouble, says John Lewis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I remember one time about 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, in one of the talks that I gave in Ordinary Life, I proposed that we have a Department of Peace mm. that worked alongside the Department of Defense and was equally funded. Right. Love it. <laughs> And you would have thought that I said, let's burn down the church or something. Yeah. Because it really upset a few of the men. Yeah. Sure. Men. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this violent thing. I'm going to mention, you know, I want to back up to something you said at the very beginning. You mentioned that you were reading Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the most important books of our time. Mm. Um there was a poll taken, I don't remember the exact thing, of important books ever written in an English language, and Man's Search for Meaning was in the top 100, mm. easy. Mm. And it was when I came to Houston to enter clinical training, it was the first book that uh, our my professor uh, made us read. It required reading, the number one Yes, before you read anything else, book. And I have probably read it now three or four times over mm -hmm. the last, oh God, 50 years it's mm -hmm. been to, to read that book. There's another book that I want to mention on Sunday too. Mm -hmm. And that book is a book that won a Pulitzer Prize. It is written by a man named Ernst Becker, and it's called The Denial of Death. Mm. And so what I'm going to say now, these are my words, but this is my understanding of what Ernst Becker said. We, uh, and this is a male thing. This does not seem to be true for women, although in some of the violent protests that I have seen depicted on television since the killing of George Floyd, I have seen really, really angry women in those protests. I, I don't think anger is problematic when we're talking about injustice. I, I, think, I think anger is an activating force when, when we're talking about injustice, you know? The, the protesters that I'm speaking about are the ones who are protesting against protest. The white, the white nationalists, the white racists, yeah. Yeah, All right. okay. And what Ernst Becker says is something like this. And again, these are my words, but there comes an awareness into our lives that we are mortal mm. and that we need something to give meaning to our existence. Becker says nothing quite does that for the male personality like going to war. Mm. Mm. 
having a fight. Interesting. And he illustrates it with Nazism, with Hitler. Uh, and, and it's the desire to make oneself heroic, um, to make oneself be monumentally important. Hmm. And, and, they, and people can accomplish that through war. And then after the war, we put up statues of our war heroes mm -hmm. to remind us of our immortality. Right. It tells you what we value, right? That it is the conflict and the violence that gets rewarded. Um, how long did it take until the, the Houston Peace Park over by the museum and the zoo put up statues of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, mm -hmm. right? Um, right across the street from some more heroes, by the way. <laughs> but it, it is so interesting. You're right. And it, it, there's also such a focus in that sort of heroic model on the individual, on the individual coming through the dark night and having triumphed. When I wonder if what we need to reframe, reframe that sort of heroic journey in as a sort of collective hero's journey. What are, what are we as a, a people needing to come through? What is the fire that needs to burn so that we come through with a new understanding as a people? It, it is also interesting that when we think about the books, like why we can't wait, uh, man's search for meaning. So the, these books, these works come out of great suffering. And it's so, there's two parts to this. So great suffering certainly changes our perspective on life and meaning and even joy. And then the other day when I was listening to a lecture by Charles M. Blow, who's a columnist for the New York Times, he said, I wonder what people like that, like Martin Luther King, like a Frankel, like, um, uh, W.B. Du Bois, like people who have paid attention to injustice their whole lives and have had to fight for that justice or equity. What could they have done if suffering were not the main theme of their story? You know, so it's sort of curious to hold both. Suffering begets deep thinking, important thinking. But what could those minds have done in a society that actually already honored them or saw them as equal? And why don't we do that? Yeah. Like what creativity is lost because of these insane hierarchies, these insane social stratas that we invent? Well, if you take the exodus from Egypt as a parable, when people get involved in the work of liberation, there is a hankering to go back to the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. We had it better off in Egypt. At least there we knew where we could sleep and we knew what we could eat. Even though we were slaves, we were secure. Mm -hmm. And so this hankering for security gets in the way of seeing the world in the way that God sees the world. Now, you know, we're personifying God again, but right. cannot not do that. But uh, 
to see the world as God sees it would be to see a world where people did learn to cooperate and live together mm -hmm. instead of having these hugely angry uh, bickering. You know, I, I don't mean to be chicken little, but I think we're in desperate times right now. I mean, I really do think that um, what's coming up in our country in this presidential election is critical for our future. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know anybody who trusts what's coming out of Washington right now about the president's health. Right. We're not being told the truth. So we have lived in a we've lived in an environment of mistrust for so long that right. what we have is an environment of anger. And I don't know, Eugene Peterson translates this beatitude we're gonna look at Sunday is you're blessed if you can get people to cooperate. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen for the, what has to happen for people on the right and left to begin to listen to each other instead of scream at each other? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is the million dollar question right now. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned not trusting what's coming out of Washington, but there is also, you know, so those who claim I'm going to make a big assertion here and I don't know if I'm correct, but those who claim to have trust in it are engaging in willful denial. You know, there's a certain level of denial that what is being said is true. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and those who don't trust it are entertaining fear are entertaining such skepticism that it's not, we can't know right now if we'll return to trust. So, you know, we've got a, we've got a double diagnosis here. We've got fear and anxiety and we've got denial. And how do those two kind of come together? How do we speak to those who are in denial of the suffering that's being caused because of this divisiveness? Well, we have to be prophetic. And that means taking sides. And it's yeah. not taking the side of the liberal over the conservative. It's taking no. the side of those who pay the price of living in a system that does not benefit everybody. Right. It's taking the side of justice. It's taking the side of justice which is an idea and an ethic and a value. It's not a right or left thing, but in so much as it becomes part of the right or left rhetoric, we must choose what is taking, what is taking a stand on injustice. And I think it is taking the stance of what is best for everybody. It has to be. There isn't, you know, there's the, um, there's that whole St. Augustine idea of like, it, if it's not a just law, then it is no law, no kind of law, right? Which again, Martin Luther King takes that up and says, um, you know, he responds to the, those who upheld the status quo law of, um, in, of segregation. Well, by demanding integration, you're breaking the law. Martin Luther King's response, of course, is, well, it's not a just law. So it's a law that must be broken 
in order to achieve the most justice for the most people. Right. Right. And um, what are those unjust laws or even, you know, it's so interesting, like even if things, People might say, well, you got the civil rights movement, you got the Voters Act, you know, but for so long, our culture has been conditioned to live segregated, unequal lives. So even if the law is there, inequity still feels true. In other words, it still guides much of what's happening even today. So maybe you can help me understand this. Mm -hmm. For as long as I can remember, there have been on the conservative side of things, the desire to, there has been a desire to lower taxes. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the ways that we can lower taxes is by not paying our school teachers much. I've never understood why it doesn't occur to everybody that if you don't provide good school teachers, our children are not going to be properly educated and our future is in those children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I'm hearing that there is a big push on the part of conservatives to end the Affordable Care Act, mm-hmm. which will eliminate health insurance for several million people who will end up costing us more money through emergency medical care than if they had well-funded insurance right why why does why do people want to get rid of the affordable care act do you understand that no i don't i don't understand it at all i think that those that viewpoint, I can only presume that that viewpoint is coming from the top 15%, if you will, right? That it's coming from the top tier of that pyramid that we keep referring to. Not from the bottom, not from the bottom 85%, but it's designed to uphold that the few will have their needs met while as the many if you have a system that benefits the few at the expense of the many, you have a system that will eventually collapse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the few at the top should see that, but mm-hmm. evidently they don't. This, oh, yeah. So this is another part of um, Jane Adams that I'm just like, oh my God, she was a prophetic voice and I'm not so sure she got enough credit in her life. But again, she probably was speaking with many others, she was probably speaking with Ida B. Wells, who had even less of a platform than she did, you know. Um, but she says, basically, progress is, progress can happen quickly when it's sort of like vertical, right? Top decides, top down progress can be decided rather quickly. But as you just said, it eventually crumbles and it eventually shows its weaknesses. But she says, progress is slower perpendicularly but it's incomparably greater because it's lateral. In other words, that lateral foundation has much more strength than let's say the single post holding up a top heavy paradigm. And another thing, you can tell where I'm 
getting my energy right now. It's, it's from these voices who have kind of been saying this stuff for a long time and haven't necessarily been those who won the day, so to speak. She also, Bill, this again, 1904, 19, early 1900s, she's talking about these two natures of the human, which is one is the character of youth and the other is maturity. She said, we need to design school systems that help guide children from youth into maturity, in short, to show them how to grow up, which sounds a lot like our friend Diarmud Umiraku, which sounds a lot like these psycho psychological theorists, Eric Erickson, Piaget, who got the credit for this stuff. But here's again a woman saying, in this direction, if we can teach the youth of humanity to become mature in our public school systems, it is in this direction that much of our hope lies in persuading our fellow humans that they are grown up. Well, people ought to read America's most recent book, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, it's about spiritual maturity. Yeah. And I, I want to avoid uh, any way of putting this that makes us sound like we've got it figured out and others don't. But Yeah, that's a good point. But <laughs> we have examples in the Hebrew prophets, Hosea and Micah and Jeremiah in particular, in John the Baptist, in Jesus himself, who says to the religious people of his day or their days, your religion is dead because God is absent from it because your religion does not practice justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And any religion that doesn't at least make room for the prophetic voice is probably a damaging religion. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, you're right. We can't talk as if we've got it all figured out. But I think that's where humility comes in. We're not, you know, I don't hear you saying, hey guys, I've got this figured out, get in line and follow me. I hear you saying, I stand on the shoulders of many great teachers. Mm -hmm. And these are the great teachers whose wisdom voices keep emerging throughout the ages when we need ameliorating, when we need healing. Well, that is exactly the way that Jesus brought about justice. Mm -hmm. And, and highlighted injustice was by bringing to everything he did a sense of profound compassion. Yeah. Compassion for those who were the perpetrators of injustice, as well as compassion for those who were the victims. Yeah. And it's, it is an important note to say, how do we have compassion for those who have perpetrated injustice? Well, do we look at them and say, well, they too are from a broken society or sometimes even more personally broken homes or broken hearts, you know, that this, this longing for belonging comes out in really beautiful ways, but it also comes out in really messy sideways. And well, I think we're all victims of the society in which we grow yeah, up. Yeah. And that what we can hope for <clears throat> is to have somebody who catches our attention along the way to say, Hey, there's another way. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, Step out of your tribe, get away from your family, come join this new family, 
and uh, participate in this family of sharing. Yes. You know, it, I think the greatest sin of our time, the greatest sin of our time is that we live in a world of such abundance. Oh, gosh. Where people are starving to death and sleeping on the street. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting idea that I've been playing with a lot in my mind and in, in trying to create structures that embody it or help create structures that embody it is the idea of democratizing wealth. Um, there's a young man who wrote a book called um, Decolonizing Wealth. And I've been listening to it. I haven't finished it. I keep, I'm kind of listening to it on and off, but it's, 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 a, it's just a concept I'm toying with. How do we democratize wealth or abundance in this case, right? So that it is available to any who need it. We must share our resources more equitably, including the planet, you know? <laughs> we, we must share the resources more equitably. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned earlier that um, your religion is dead because it doesn't serve justice. Um, I follow on Instagram, the King Center, and they often post quotes from Martin Luther King's writing or um, things pertinent to today. And the one that was posted recently said, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them the economic conditions that strangle them and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. So to do justice, we have to care about economic conditions, food conditions, food scarcity. We, we have to care about that stuff. We can't just say i care about the poor but not care about the conditions that created the poor right you know so let me read it to you you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight that's when you discover who you really are and your place in god's family i have uh, noticed and you just do this to yourself sometime. Just sit down in front of your TV and turn it on and see what you get. Yeah. I notice that when I do that, what I get are commercials. Yeah. Selling happiness or some package of it. And these are only some of the side effects you get if you take this medication. Oh, While the happy music plays in the background. <laughs> That's right. It's such cognitive dissonance. But yeah. Well, we've got a lot to unpack in terms of creating cooperative, I want to say fractals. You know, I, I really think this work has to be fractalized. In other words, in the small communities in which we live and work, can we create these small fractals that are committed to just a little bit more love. And, and how, how do we get the message across without causing people to feel that they're being criticized or punished in some way? I, I'd like to be able to talk about judgment in a hopeful way. Mm-hmm. 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 
and I don't want to gloss over the fact either that I I think that we as a country and as a world, but we as a country are really in a situation where the stakes are really, really high. I agree. And there's inevitably going to be a feeling of judgment or hurt feelings. But I think one of the things that can be helpful is that looking at injustice in the world isn't about how we feel about it or whether the person that we want to work for their liberation likes us or not. It's about a belief system. What do we believe in? Do we believe in justice? And if we say that's what we believe in, then what does it look like? Yep. It's just a process of re-examination, I think. Well, we'll keep working on it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. I will see you Sunday. You sure will. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.